Father, we thank you for the gift of song. Thank you for putting it on our hearts to desire to sing. Thank you for giving us voices that can harmonize together and declare our delight in you, our love of you, our dependence upon you, and supremely to declare your greatness, your glory, your wonder, your works, your beauty. We are enraptured with you, overwhelmed by the grace of your love. And we thank you for songwriters and music writers who put word and music together so that rich theology is matched by beautiful by beautiful instruments and together we declare your wonder and declare your beauty so we thank you for song and thank you for your word that informs our minds guides us and directs us and thank you this morning that as we come to this greatest song about your word, that we would find ourselves riveted with you, grateful for you, dependent on you, strengthened by you, and in love with you because of this word. Would you shape us in the moments ahead? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a child, my maternal grandparents at Christmas time would give gifts to all of the grandchildren that were comprised of a large gift of candy and snacks. Because of distance, we only remember, we only celebrated one Christmas with my grandparents. It was the Christmas of my sixth grade. And we showed up at their house. And I was anticipating the goodie bag and I saw older grandkids coming out of the meeting with grandma and grandpa with gifts of stuff. And I made my way back when it was my turn to stand in front of my grandfather and looking at the drawer that was next to him filled with bags and anticipating what I would get. And then I learned what I had to do to get the gift. I had to quote a Bible verse from memory. And I don't remember what I said, but I remember what I was tempted with. John 11.35. You know, (laughs) Jesus wept. I didn't go there. Uh, It was a good thing. And uh, in God's grace and my grandfather's kindness, I got a gift bag. I wasn't the first person to attempt to use the Bible in that kind of inappropriate way. In his classic work, The Treasury of David, Charles Spurgeon recounts the story of one George Weishart, the Bishop of Edinburgh in the 17th century. Weishart was the biographer of uh, the Marquis of Montrose. The Marquis of Montrose evidently wasn't in good standing with the government and he had been 
sentenced to die by hanging, and Weishart, because of his biography of the Marquis, likewise was sentenced to die by hanging. And the day showed up for his hanging, and he made his way to the scaffold. And on the scaffold, he invoked his right for one last request. And the custom of the day was you could request any psalm to be sung. And so he chose not Psalm 117, which is the shortest in the Psalter, two verses and five lines, but he chose, you guessed it, Psalm 119, all 176 lines. He chose it because he was anticipating that um, a, a message would arrive that would absolve him of his crime. And they were two-thirds of the way through the 176 lines when indeed the message arrived and his life was spared. I guess you might say he was saved by a long song. Well, that was good news for Weishart, and Spurgeon is quick to note that Weishart was more well-known for his shrewdness than his sanctity That's not what God intended with this song. This song, like all of Scripture, reveals the character of God. And supremely, Psalm 119 reveals the character of God's revelation, the Scriptures. For about 15 years, that's not how long it takes to read this song. It takes about 15 to 20 minutes, but for 15 years we have been slowly making our way through this psalm, one stanza at a time, one stanza at the beginning of the year, one stanza in the middle of the year. Last week, we looked at the last stanza, and like a lot of times when I look at Scripture, I couldn't just leave it alone and walk away. And so this is my one last look at this psalm in its totality. As we think about the coming year, as we think about how will we how we will be fed on the scriptures in this coming year, what can we learn from this song? What can we learn about God? What can we learn about the song uh, and the scriptures in this song? We learn this: that the Bible is God's all-sufficient revelation to rightly guide the child of God in every circumstance. That statement is longer than I like at the beginning of a sermon, but every word is important. The Bible is from God. It belongs to him. It's authoritative. We'll see that in a moment. It originates in him. It comes from him. It is not man's idea. It is his idea. It is his revelation. It is his declaration to us about him, about this world and about us. It is a revelation that is all-sufficient for all people in all circumstances. It will guide you wherever you are in every circumstance. And that word is supremely for the child of God. While the Bible reveals the way of salvation for the unbeliever, ultimately the unbeliever cannot obey God And cannot do what God says. And frankly doesn't even want to obey God. So this book is ultimately God's guide for God's followers. 
as we summarize this psalm. And we will not go through every single verse. We've already done that. But I want to look with you at this psalm one last time, asking and answering three primary questions about the Word of God. Three questions about the Word of God. The first is, what is the Word of God? What is the Word of God? Just a, just a couple words about the structure of this psalm. There are a lot of passages in Scripture that are self-revelatory. That is, where Scripture tells us about Scripture and what Scripture is. Psalm 1, Psalm, 1, uh, Psalm 19, Joshua 1, 8, John 17, 17, 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, Hebrews 4, 12, 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, 2 Peter 1, 3, 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. But there is no passage that compares to this passage about the Word of God because of its length and because of its comprehensiveness. It's 176 verses saturated with the Word of God. I mean, that's longer than multiple books in the Scriptures. Uh, By way of reminder, it was also written as an acrostic. So it is 22 stanzas long, Each stanza is marked by a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So there are 22 stanzas for the 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So the first stanza, every line in the first stanza begins with the first letter, Aleph, in the Hebrew alphabet. The second stanza begins with, every line begins with the second letter and so on all the way through. That was given to us as probably given to the Israelites probably as a mnemonic device to help them remember what is it that God is revealing to us about the word of God and about him. Remember that in those days, not everybody had a Bible. In fact, there was no such thing as a Bible. It was a scroll and the scroll was contained at the temple and then at the synagogues wherever the Israelites were gathered. And so if they were going to know and memorize and meditate on the Word of God, they had to hear it in worship and memorize it in worship and take it home with them. And so this is given, as they're singing, it's given to them as a way of remembering uh, the Word of God. It's also an acrostic and follows the Hebrew alphabet, I think in part to demonstrate the thoroughness and completeness of God's revelation to us in His Word. When He says, from the beginning to the end of the alphabet, it's a way of communicating, I have given to you everything you need from the beginning of life to the end of life. There is nothing you need that goes beyond this book. It's enough. It is, as it were, God's revelation from A to Z. And that's what was being communicated. As we make our way through this psalm, there's a little bit of debate about how many words are used for Scripture, but there are at least eight primary words that are used for the Scriptures, and that's what I want us to pay attention to at the moment. Eight words. Most of these words appear in most of the stanzas. So most stanzas contain at least six of these words. Many of them contain seven, and five of the stanzas contain all eight of these words and these words are given to us as a as a as a means of revealing what is it that God wants us to know about his word How, what does his word do and weak point pound ha- harder 
eight primary words, eight lines in each stanza. I think that's given to us the eight lines to reinforce that there are eight words that the scriptures function around. And the first word is that God's word is the law. That's the word Torah. You're familiar with the word Torah. It's used 25 times in this psalm. One other of these words is used 25 times, but it's the most dominant usage along with that other word. The, the law, as you think about the law, often refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. It's, it's the law as it was decreed to Moses on Mount Sinai in not just those first five books, but the particular law that the nation of Israel was to follow that was their guide to keep them until Christ came and fulfilled the law and was able to impute righteousness to them. It's used very often in the scripture to denote that technical sense that this is the Mosaic law. But as we read this book or read this psalm, that's not how the word is being used. It's used in a more general sense, just the law in general. And the word law um, has a sense of pointing or directing, uh, teaching, instructing. So when the psalmist uses the word law here, he's saying that the law is God's revelation to point out God's will to give us a direction for a way to go. One commentator says it is Yahweh's communication of moral truth and a demonstration of his guidance and grace. And we see it, in fact, in the very first verse. 119.1, and I hope your Bible is open to 119. We're going to make our way all the way through, back and forth in this psalm as we make our way through it. Verse 1, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, who walk in the direction. And think about that. He's taking this image, right, of living life, and he says life is like a pathway, And Christ, or excuse me, God is the one who is pointing us, directing us along that pathway. And when we follow God's directions, our lives are blessed. Verse 29, another usage. Remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. So keep me from going the false way. Keep me from going the wrong direction. Keep me going the right direction, and I know that way will come to me through your law. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may observe your law. Observe doesn't mean just read and look, but keep, obey, that I may observe your law, your direction, and keep it, again, obey it with all my heart. So God's word is the law to direct us, to guide us, to instruct us. It is also his testimony. The word testimony, as you find it in this psalm, is a court term. It means it is a witness. It, it, it declares something about, about God and his nature and his word. It is his affirmation about God, his character, his attributes, and his demands. And when we think about God and his testimony, God and the witness, there is a sense in the legal sense that it's placed us under an accountability to him. We are, we are required to follow and we will give an account to him for how we follow. Verse 2, how blessed are those who observe his testimonies, his witnesses who seek him with all their heart. They're blessed because 
They followed him. They followed his counsel. They followed his witness. They've affirmed and in their, in their accountability to him, they're blessed because they went the right way. Verse 59. I considered my ways and turned your feet to, turned my feet to your testimonies. Verse 88. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. So 59, he evaluates his own life. He evaluates what direction he's going. And he says, I want to go your way. I want to follow in the pathway that you're holding me accountable to. And verse 88, I'm brought to life for the purpose of following after you. So God's word is his law, his testimony. Thirdly, it is his precept. This is a military term. And it has the idea of uh, providing rules and regulations and expectations for how someone's men will operate in a given situation in war. And so as we think about the precepts of God, we think about the details of God's word that direct us in a particular way. While he provides general direction, he often also provides very specific directions, details, And we are obligated to follow them and blessed to have these so that we might follow them. So he says in verse 4, you have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. So you have prescribed these things for us. You've you've made the rules and they're not just happenstance. They're not just things that you've dreamt up on a whim. They flow out of your character and they are for our good. 100. I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. We'll come back to that one in just a moment. From your precepts, verse 104, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. It is, it is all the particularities of your rules that give me understanding. And as I understand this world, now I hate ways that are false that go away from you. So if you want to fight against sin, you need the precepts. You need this book and it'll protect you. In that way, God's word is a statute. That is, it is something that is prescribed. The word statute came from a word that meant to engrave or inscribe. And because of that, it implies permanence, stability, unchangingness. Do you ever wonder why when Moses went up onto Mount Sinai and received the law of God, he got it on a rock? It's not because he didn't have a capability of writing stuff down on paper. They had forms of paper at that time. But it's to denote this is unchanging. You erase and scratch out and obliterate ink on a scroll. You don't obliterate words that are engraved on a rock. You delete an app out of your phone. God could have sent it to us in an app. And he doesn't. Because apps are temporary, fleeting. Their information changes. And what is inscribed on the rock is unalterable. It's permanent. It's authoritative. Verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe to the end. You teach me what's on the rock, 
and I'll observe it to the end. The word is permanent and my obedience likewise is permanent. 64, the earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. There you have general revelation and particular revelation. And both lead him to God. God's word is his statute. God's word is his commandment. Scripture reasons with men at times. Scripture at times will appeal to men with logic, with reason. Try to persuade them of the truth. But, the, but, but, but a fundamental characteristic of God's word is not that it just reasons and appeals and pleads. It does that. But even more, it commands. It directs. This word refers to the fact that God has a right to give orders. Scripture isn't just persuasive. It is commanding. It is directive. It is the revelation of God's insistent will. Verse 10. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. I wanted you. Keep me from wandering away. And not only... Are the commandments good to keep me from wandering from him? Notice verse 21. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander away from your commandments. If you don't follow the commandments of God, judgment is coming. So God is authoritative. But it's not just that God gives us commands. For those of you who have children in your home and for those of you who haven't yet forgotten what it's like to be a child... Sometimes when parents command things of children, children don't like it. I won't ask for a show of hands about how many have experienced that, but it happens. That's not it with the psalmist. Listen to the psalmist. 35. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. You've told me what to do, and it is a delight. To my heart. 47. I delight in your commandments. Which I love. And I shall lift up my hands to your commandments. Which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. It's like he's just overflowing with gratitude. You've told this to me. And I love you. And I love what you've said. And I love doing what you say to do. God's word is his commandment. God's word is his judgment. And the word that you have in your text that is often translated as ordinances, you'll find that most often, it typically refers to judgments. These are standards. So when you see the word ordinances, when you see the word judgments, think standards by which God will evaluate man's condition. His standard is the final standard. It's how God righteously rules and God governs His kingdom. 106. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. So those ordinances are his judgments and they're righteous. They're right. There's nothing that's gone askew of them. 108, two verses down. Oh, accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. Teach me your evaluation of. Fill in the blank of yourself, of this world, of me. I want to know what you think, how you evaluate, how you judge. 
God's word is, here's a technical one, see if you can hang on to this. God's word is his word. It's a very general word. There's actually two words. We'll see another one in just a moment. It's a very general word. It's God's declaration in any form. It's a promise. It's a statement. It's a command. It's anything that is revealed by him that comes from him. It's, it's this idea. God has spoken. It's his word. It's not someone else's word. It's his word. It comes from him, from his character. Verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Everything you say, that leads to purity. Everything that comes from your mouth, that leads to purity. Verse 25. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. What you say brings life, strength, healing, hope. God's word is his word. God's word is his promise. The word that you find there for promise is also sometimes more simply translated word. That is the root word. It it comes from the word that means to say or to speak. Generally, as the psalmist uses it, though, he is thinking about the particular promises of God and the comfort that is derived from the promises that God gives. So we find this one in verse 41. May your loving kindness also come to me, O Lord, and your salvation according to your word, according to your promises. Verse 58. I sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word, according to your promises. 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. How sweet are your promises to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And so all of these different ways are God's revelation to us, his manner of speaking to us. And it tells us what this book is like. And there's a sense in which all these different words are distinct and unique and point us to particular attributes of God. But but they're not just that way. There also is overlap between them. And there are times when you just say, it's just God's word. And he has spoken. They are, as it were, like eight different ringing bells that sound different notes that are all tuned to one piano. And so they all harmonize together to give us one beautiful song of what the Word of God is. Let's just summarize this very quickly. What is the nature and the character of the Word of God? What is it, what is it like? The Bible tells us what the, what the Bible is, the, tell, the Bible tells us what it does, the Bible tells us what we are to do. It is, in a word, authoritative. It is about God, and it is from God, and it has the right and authority to say, thus says the Lord, that compels us to act in particular ways. But brothers and sisters, it is also wholly true. In what it says. It is always right. It is never wrong. And it is wholly good. In what it says. 
No matter what it says, it is always to our benefit. And I get it. There are hard passages. Not hard to understand, hard to do. But they're always for our good. And this word is wholly sufficient in what it says. It doesn't need help from anywhere else to guide us and direct us. When we have this book, we have what we need to live life. That's why our doctrinal statement says that the Bible is the final authority for faith and life. It's why Martin Luther said this. For some years now, I have read through the Bible twice every year. If you picture the Bible to be a mighty tree and every word a little branch, I have shaken every one of those branches because I wanted to know what it was and what it meant. Why give that attention? Because it is an all-sufficient word that is good for us. That is what the Word of God is. Second question, what does the Word of God do? I want you to think about the kinds of circumstances in which the Word of God speaks. There is great debate about the author of this psalm. Uh, Some have speculated that it's David because, quite frankly, it sounds and reads like David. If you read other of David's psalms, you you read this one, you go, that's David. Um, And there are kingly references in the psalm. There's oppression from outsiders, from princes that are opposed to the psalmist. And that fits David's life, though there are no particulars that indicate any specific person David or otherwise in this psalm. Others have speculated that because of the circumstances that are explained in this psalm, it is probably a post-exilic psalm. That is, it, it was written after the exile in Babylon or maybe at the end of the exile, perhaps by Daniel as the people are going back to Israel from Babylon that this psalm is being written to guide them and direct them. Frankly, brothers and sisters, we just don't know. And I don't want to say with authority, yes, it's this one. No, it's that one. And I think it's our blessing that we don't know. Because in the anonymity of the author, we find the reality that whether you're a king like David or a peasant in exile, the word of God is adequate for you. It's not just for kings. It's not just for the weak and broken. It's for everyone. And no matter where you are in life, in location or in position, this book will be adequate for you. There's also difficulty in classifying the psalm. What kind of psalm is it? So scholars like to take psalms and say, that this is this kind of psalm, and because it's this kind of psalm, we're going to interpret it in this kind of way. As you think about this psalm, you, you will find elements in it that says it's a hymn of praise. And you, and you read that, and you go, this is, a, this is a psalmist that's just saturated with delight in God. We've already read some of those verses, and he's full of praise. In fact, he gets to the last stanza, and it's a prayer and a song. And he's singing, and he's happy. And there's elements of it that It's a psalm of prayer. In fact, some have said that while the last stanza particularly focuses on prayer, you read it and you go, the whole thing is a prayer. 
There are elements of it that are didactic, that are teaching, that are instructing us. And there are, there are parts of it that are certainly lament. Again, what kind of psalm is it? It's Psalm 119. It stands on its own. And it speaks to all of those circumstances in life. Are you happy? This song is adequate. Are you sad? This song is adequate. And whatever your circumstance is, this song, this book, will be adequate for your need. And that should comfort us. I want you to consider as well some of the attributes of the word that are depicted on in this psalm. Um, if you're looking at my blog ever, or if you follow Twitter or Facebook or whatever your preferred social media is, yesterday I posted a chart in which I went through this week and just delineated all of the different attributes about this, about the word of God that are explained in this psalm. Um, I didn't count them up, but there were a pile of them. And uh, so this is just like, this is the snapshot version. But I think this is what this psalm emphasizes. First of all, as you think about the Word of God, what is the Word of God like? It is from God. And it is about God. It is to point us to Him it is saturated with Him. Just just notice verse 1. How blessed are, are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law. Oh, there's another phrase, isn't there? Of the Lord. It's not just any law. I mean, there's a sense in which you could say, your life is going to be blessed if you follow the law, right? I mean, that's part of what we do as parents. We teach our children to obey the law so they don't die by disobeying the law, right? I mean, that's that's civil morality, and that's part of our job. We want to keep them alive. And that, that's not what he's talking about, though. There's a particular blessing that comes from obeying God's law. And here he identifies it not just as God's law, but it's the law of Yahweh. And here he uses the covenant name of Yahweh, the God who has chosen Israel to be his, who has come into covenant with them and revealed himself to them so that they could follow him. Twenty-four times in this psalm, he uses that name of God. Not every, but virtually every stanza has a reference to Yahweh. And it is a repeated reminder, this is God's law. It comes from Him, and it comes from the One who has made a covenant with you, who has made promises to you. This book is, is the promises that come from the One who has saved you. And it's not just that He's made promises. This book comes from the One who loves you in spite of what you are or were. Remember, he didn't choose Israel because Israel was dominant and favorable and great and mighty. No, he chose them because they were the least. He chose them, Deuteronomy tells us, chapter 7, because he loved them. And so these, these names, as it refers to God, all the way through the psalm, are a reminder that this is about the Lord and from the Lord. But I want you to notice this as well. It's not just the verses that name God that emphasize that this is about him and from him. Just let me reread stanza one. Watch the pronouns. Him, he, you. 
Verse 2, how blessed are those who observe his commandments, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks to you for uprightness of heart when I learn of your righteous commandments and I will keep your statutes. Parentheses, you do not forsake me utterly. I mean, the, the whole stanza is just permeated with the nature of God and the character of God. And it's a reminder to us that this is all about him. It's from him. It's through him. It's to him. It's for him. It's designed to get us to him. In fact, there are only five verses out of the 176 that do not directly refer to God by name or pronoun. Five. It's, it's just a reminder. It's, it's him. That's why Packer says in his book, Knowing God, of him as of no one else, it is true that what he says goes. It is in the truth of the word of God that rules the world and fixes our fortunes for us. My favorite commentator uh, on this psalm, it's a technical commenta- commentary. The word of God and the child of God says this, George Zemeck. Every statement by the psalmist ultimately breathes in an atmosphere of dependency He, the psalmist, has an overriding theocentric orientation. It's focused on God so that it is unequivocally God's word which preoccupies the psalmist. It's all about him. And because this book is about God, it is also a book that is righteous. Verse 123, we find this kind of reference All the way through. My eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. 128. I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything and I hate every false way. God has never misspoken. God has never declared anything wrong. Everything he says is right. God is by nature righteous. He only does what is right. He only speaks what is right. Wayne Grudem in his theology has written, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Nothing God does, nothing God says is ever wrong. He's omniscient, can't be. Even when we are afflicted with suffering, and I know some of you are suffering, when we're afflicted with suffering, he is right. 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous. And that in faithfulness, faithfulness what? To what? To himself, to what is right. And that in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. When we suffer, nothing's gone wrong. 
It is painful. I know that. And the psalmist knows that. He doesn't deny it. But it's not wrong. God hasn't failed. God hasn't gone off track. God hasn't lied. He's telling you the truth. He's giving you the truth. He's giving what is right. Brothers and sisters, that is hopeful for us. Because in his righteousness, and this is also revealed in this psalm, in his righteousness, he must condemn sin. He must condemn sinners. He must rectify what is wrong. And because he's right, he will. You trust him. It is from God. It is righteous. It is the way to live. At least 13 times he alludes to that. In case you're wondering, there were at least 12 references to God's righteous word in this psalm and at least 11 on Scripture's truth and faithfulness. 13 times he points to Scripture as being the way to live. You know, there are a lot of different ways to live, seemingly. If you go to the world, well, you can live this way, you can live this way, you can live this way, you can live this way. No, the Bible says there are two ways to live. You can live for God. Or you can live for self, the world, and Satan. It's only two ways. And the psalmist says that this book will take you to the pathway of God. It exposes what God says is the way to live. And that way is always safe and always good. We've already pointed to verse 1, verse 35. Make me to walk in the path. That's the way of your commandments. Why? Because I delight in it. I know that what you command and how you direct will be good for me and I delight in that. Verse 45. And I will walk at liberty. I will walk in the pathway of life at liberty. At, that, that has the idea of it's a wide path. It's easy going. No hardship here. If I follow you, there's no hardship. There's no pain and suffering that comes because of my sin. And so I seek, end of verse 45, your precepts. 105, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. You want to know the right way to go? You just follow the pathway of God and it will light your way to right things. You know, our inclination is to think that there is no freedom when we obey God. God turns that around and says, there's no freedom when you disobey me. Disobedience is only bondage. There's no freedom in disobedience. There's no freedom in following the pathway of the world. The only freedom is found in following the pathway of Christ who has loosed from us the chains of sin. The old commentator Charles Bridges says of this reality, the way of the Lord, which to the ungodly is beset with thorns and briars, is the king's highway of liberty. The child of God walks here in gladness of his heart and in the rejoicing of his conscience. It is the way to live. It teaches us. At least 24 times it tells us 
that it teaches us or that we have something to learn. Verse 7, I give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. Verse 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. You're good. The things you do are good. I don't know them. Would you teach them to me? Your word is able to do that. Similarly, verse 73, your hands made me strong. Excuse me, your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. I don't know how to say this discreetly and inoffensively, but brothers, we need to taught, be taught because we're ignorant. We don't know. We're clueless. We're lost in the forest. We don't understand and May I also add, sometimes that's just because we just don't know. We've not been taught. We've not been exposed. God's word hasn't been revealed to us. Nobody stood in the gap and said, this is the way. But sometimes we're ignorant because we want to be ignorant. We've stopped up our ears and said, don't tell me. I'm not interested. And this book is given to us to teach us about God, to teach us about His world, to teach us about ourselves, to teach us what is best for us, to teach us how to live, how to function in this world. And when you learn from this book, you may not have a degree, but you will be wisest than, wiser than the most educated unbeliever in the world. Am I just saying that? No. Verse 98. Your commandments... Make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I am surrounded by enemies, but I know something they don't know. I have the book, and that makes me wiser than all of them. All of the nonsense that's being purported to be truth in the world? No. If you have this book in you, you have more wisdom than that. There is... No situation in which the Bible cannot teach you what you need. Verse 96, I've seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. I've seen a limit to perfection. So you go outside these walls, you pick up the Wall Street Journal, you watch your favorite news channel on TV, and and you follow your favorite political commentator, you follow your favorite economic advisor, and they're all going to say, this is, this is the perfect way to go. And you're looking around the world and going, uh, not sure I want perfection, thank you. And the psalmist is being ironic. He says, there's a limit to perfection. There's a limit to what is being purported to be perfection. But your commandment is exceedingly broad. It's extensive. It's powerful. It's not just exceedingly broad. It's infinitely broad. This book will help you with everything. So here's a question. What do you need today? What do you personally need today? What do you not know? What do you need help with? What do you need guidance with? What do you need hope for? What do you need encouragement with? 
Got that fixed in your mind? I have like six things. Okay, truth. I've got like 42, but I didn't want to tell you how ignorant I am. Got it fixed in your mind? This book is exceedingly broad in its wisdom. It's enough. It'll give you what you need today. This is the answer. Don't go outside these walls. Stay in this book. It'll give you the answer. One last attribute. It is joy. The psalmist says he finds delight in the word. He has joy in it. He rejoices. He sings the word. Like a lot of the other scripture writers, he has a lot of happy language in the book. But when you think happy, it's, it's okay to think giddy. I mean, that's two weeks in a row I've used that word. I don't think I've ever used that word in a sermon before. It's okay to think giddy. But that's not really what he's thinking about. He's really thinking about settled, content, at peace, restful, satisfied. Think about it in these terms. Think about a recent occasion in which you were tempted to be angry. And the words were racing around your head. Your chest was getting constricted. Maybe your fists got a little clenched. There wasn't a BP cuff on your, on your arm, but you felt the blood pressure going up. And you were really inclined to say something. And you withheld. And you fought in the mind and said, it is not my place to say that word. That word is unbecoming of a follower of Christ. I want to honor God and not myself. And so I will not say that word. In that moment, as you're wrestling through that, you're probably not giddy. But I promise you, ten minutes later, you will not be disappointed that you didn't say that word. You'll look back ten minutes later or ten hours later and you say, Thank you, Lord. And it will become to you a joy. That's what the psalmist is talking about. The psalmist thinks of the word of God and he sees it as his source of joy. Verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. You can give me anything in this world, this book is better than that. So one commentator says, the word proceeding from the mouth of God is now more precious to him than earthly riches. It's given him far more than he has had to give up in his afflictions and suffering. Friends, there's no bitterness from being obedient to God And you will never be sorrowful for being obedient to him who will always only lead you to joy. We need the book because there is no book like this book. 
There is no book that can compel and do what this book does. It is alive and it brings to life. So what do we do? I have two minutes. A few years ago, I read through this psalm again, just kind of going through it like I did this week. And instead of looking for attributes of what the psalmist psalm is and what the word of God is, I looked for responses for the word of God. How does the psalmist respond? What do we do because of this book? I counted at least 45. Hope you brought your lunch. Let me summarize it. I'll give you three. These are the prominent ones. Obey the word of God. Of all of the responses to the word of God, the most dominant one is to keep the word, to obey the word, to follow the word. It is the goal of his life, verse 17. It is the desire of his heart, verse 34. It is his promise to the Lord, verse 57. And it is his immediate and full response to God's revelation. Verse 59. I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. It's immediate. You, you teach your kids, you teach your grandkids, right? I'm going to tell you to do something and I expect you to obey and immediately and without argument. That's not just for children. I hastened and did not delay to obey your commandments. It's for us as well. It has been said that Too often we are busy managing our sin than repenting of our sin. And might I suggest to you that we manage our sin and we don't repent because we don't have a desire and we don't have a commitment to obey. I hastened and did not delay to follow your commands. Do you have a desire to obey? Do you have a desire not to disobey? Do you want your life to look like God, to look like Christ? Then this book is what you need. Dale Johnson, the director of ACBC, has written this. The sufficient word of God revives the soul, enlightens the eyes, makes wise the simple, and rejoices the heart. These are not the meals our flesh craves, but it is the nourishment we need. Obey the word of God. Remember the word of God. About 10 times in this psalm, the psalmist says he will remember and he will not forget the word of God. And he is purposefully being attentive to remember what God says. He goes back to the old truths, the ancient truths, the eternal truths that he has been taught. Verse 52, I have remembered your ordinances from of old. That's not... That's not the things he was taught when he was a child. It is the ancient truths, the eternal truths that he was taught about God. And then he says the end of the verse, and comfort myself by them. They're his comfort when he remembers them. He remembers the word of God in the dark times of the night, verse 55. He remembers the word of God when he is attacked by persecutors and by, and by suffering, verse 61. In every circumstance, he is purposeful to remember the word of God. And that remembrance comes as a result of meditating on the word. So he remembers because he meditates. And 
About 10 or 12 more times, he talks about meditating on the word. Verse 15, I meditate on your precepts and I regard your ways. Verse 23, even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. This is not just the remember to memorize the word of God portion of the message, though that's certainly appropriate. It's a reminder to be purposeful and attentive to fix your mind on this book. So last night, about 9 o'clock, kind of wrapping up, kind of getting ready for the day, I heard a sound and I thought, what is that? It's fireworks. January 20. Oh, yeah. Everybody shoots off fireworks on January 20. And I thought, that was kind of weird. And I didn't think any more about it. Until I was going to bed, teeth are brushed, I'm crawling into bed, thinking about this morning, and boom! What in the world? And I go outside, and it's not just boom, but it's people people who are talking loudly, like perhaps they'd been drinking a certain beverage. You know what I'm talking about. And from 10 o'clock, I got the report this morning, till after 1 o'clock. Shooting off fireworks. Now in that moment, I'm thinking a lot of things. And I pulled out this text. I considered my ways. And this is how I fell asleep. I considered my ways. And I turned my feet to your testimonies. And it was running through my head. It's okay, Terry, what do you want? And what do you need to do? that will reflect the way of God. And I focused on that. And the Lord directed me. And that's what he does for us. One last element. How do we respond to the word of God? Love the word of God. We've already said that the Bible is a joy. This is a related response. If the Bible is joyful, we love this book. Because it's joyful, love it. Like a young married man, this psalmist just can't get enough of the book. He's just saturated with it. He loves the commands of God, 47 and 48. He loves the law of God as it directs him in doing what he ought to do. Verse 97, he learns to hate the evil deeds of evil men, 113. He loves God's revelation more than anything the world can offer, 127. He loves purity and sanctity of the word of God, 140. He loves peace and contentment because he loves God's directive law, 165. And he loves God's word from his heart. It's not just what he has to do. He wants to. My soul inwardly keeps your testimonies and I love them exceedingly. It's not just that he does loving things. He Inwardly is driven. Oh, brothers and sisters, obey the word of God and think on the word of God and do that because you have a love for the word of God. So like Jesus' questions of, question of Peter after the resurrection, we do well to ask ourselves this question. Do you love God's word? Do you love God's word? Do you love God's word more than the world? Do you? Then feed yourself on it. And you will never find yourself disappointed. Father, thank you.
for this word about the word. For all of our spiritual lives, we've been coming to this book for help and guidance, and we've never been disappointed. For 15 years, we've been looking at this psalm intermittently, and we've never been disappointed, and we've always been helped. So, thank you. Thank you for telling us about yourself and telling us what we need. Thank you for being patient with us as we stumble our way forward towards you on your pathway. And would you not only help us along that pathway by this book, but as we immerse ourselves in this book, would you give us a love for this book? And then increasing transformation from this book because we love it. We pray these things, Father, thanking you for the goodness of the book and the goodness of your revelation. In Christ's name, amen.